0: Here at Waterstone we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5:30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Good morning. Yeah, you you may note, a couple things before we start, some pink spots up here and this group of people sitting over here with a spotlight on. We have our, uh, we can't wait for our trailhead community. Uh, It's a a living for uh, adults with disabled uh, needs and uh, that's what this whole building over here is. Yesterday we had to cut the power for them to get some stuff in and so we had no power here for like three hours and so a lot of our stuff's like messed up right now, so... Uh, you folks, I mean, the light's on you. If you want to um, stop at our info desk, we'll give you a gift <laughs> for sitting there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> please feel free to move if you want to move right now. Thanks for your patience and uh, putting up with that. I want to welcome in the online audience. We're glad you've joined us today. Happy birthday, Mom. And uh, also um, Billy Lloyd, um, If you're watching, our hearts and prayers are with you. Billy Lloyd, our executive pastor, his dad died last night. And uh, a a life well lived, a man of faith in his 80s, but uh, it's always hard to lose your dad. And uh, so please be praying for Billy and Sarah and the family. They'll be traveling down there at some point for a funeral service. And uh, pray for Billy's mom who uh, moves on now as a widow. Uh got good news and bad news about the sermon today. <laughs> the bad news is we're going to be encountering some of the most intense and challenging texts in Scripture. So if at any point, like you, you're not squirming, ask yourself if you're really getting it. You know, by the way, who is the most dangerous person to our notions of what Christianity is and to our sense of what a good and significant life means, right? Jesus. Jesus is dangerous to those things. The good news is that uh, today's message is an invitation from Jesus. It's an invitation to submit those notions and submit those ideas of what a good life is for a life of kingdom. For a life of the eternal kingdom now. For a life that C.S. Lewis called in a, a place where the serious business is joy. And we'll encounter and experience that joy after the sermon as we meet Jesus at his table today for communion. Welcome to the Rhythms of Life series, or as Paul and I are calling it, the Rhythms of Tick. These are what make Waterstone tick. This is the third and last in a series. Next week, we are excited to get back to Acts Part 2 as we continue on with the history of the early church. But today, we want to talk about the rhythm of restore, reminding you that uh, our church and every church was launched with words the first words Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Mark when He said, The time is now, Jesus, with us. The kingdom of God is at hand, His rule, His reign. Repent, change your direction, align with Him, and believe the good news. Lean, trust, pledge your highest allegiance to Him. Out of those words come our mission statement. I'd actually like you to read it aloud with me this one more time. Would you? To be a people empowered by the presence of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor. We broker this influence of Jesus. We leverage it in our lives. We practice it by these three, what we call at Waterstone, rhythms where we live out the presence of the kingdom. The first rhythm is called transform, and that means becoming like Jesus. Specifically, again, read this with me, with feeling. (laughs) Jesus promises his particular presence through the Holy Spirit who uses truth, relationships, and life experiences to conform every believer more to the image of Christ. So we practice this rhythm of transform to become more like Jesus. And then into us and out of us comes the rhythm of neighboring. The second rhythm is when we want to see the presence of Jesus be experienced in other people, our neighbor, our friends, our family. And so this neighboring rhythm, let's read it together. Moved by Jesus' heart for the lost, we seek to talk about Jesus' presence in the world so our neighbors can come to know Him as we pray for them, engage them in conversation, and welcome them to our table. So we transform, become like Jesus, and then we live for others by wanting others to experience Jesus and come into His kingdom. And then the third is we not only proclaim Jesus, but we demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy. We are walking previews of what's to come, the eternal kingdom in the now. So we have the restore rhythm. Again, last one, I promise. Here we go. We flood the world with his presence as previews of what is to come when Jesus returns to make all things new by giving generously loving mercy and doing justice. So today, I want to take a dive into that restore rhythm, and I especially want to focus on two of the words, mercy and justice, and especially the word justice, because that's a trigger word in our culture. It's a trigger word in churches. Everyone has their own definition probably of what that means. I'd like us to hear at least today the the biblical definition Of that word justice. So that's where we're going to go today. And the big idea for us to leave with is this, that what we're going to see today by looking at God's Word is that mercy and justice are the heart of God. They are His heart. His heart beats mercy and beats justice. And so, knowing His heart, mercy and justice must be the practice of every follower of Jesus. We know his heart of mercy and justice, and so we practice in our daily lives mercy and justice. You with me? Sound okay? We're going there. Here's where we're going. That is it. in the middle, because this first part, like, like I said, squirming, we'll have an interlude in the middle. How's that? We'll, we'll, have, we'll take a deep breath. I wish I could offer everyone coffee, but we'll just take a deep breath in the middle. The heart of God is mercy and and justice. As Cat read the text, you probably noticed like the astonishing coupling that happened in that text. In verses two and three, you heard that this is Israel in their biblical history uh, about 500 years before Jesus came. They're excited about rebuilding the temple. They're excited about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're being allowed back from exile to go back in. So all these things are very excited. What they're doing is practicing the spiritual disciplines. They're praying. They're fasting. They believe they have a great relationship with God. But verse 1, Isaiah was instructed to go and what? Declare their rebellion. Wait, we're praying, we're fasting, we're obedient, we're having this relationship with God, and Isaiah sent they're rebellious. And, in fact, the people are astonished themselves. At the end of verse 3, it just says, like, we're fasting, we're praying. But where are you, God? We don't sense your presence. Here's why. Verses 6 and 7. I'll read these. This is important. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood the people thought because of their individual religious practices their obedient lives that they had a relationship with god but here it is here it is If we think we have a relationship with God, but we do not have a relationship with the poor and the oppressed, we do not have a right relationship with God. What's astonishing, even more, is about how frequent this language appears in Scripture. A brief survey. Let's go to the end of Israel's biblical history, the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 7, we read, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Almighty said, Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil, Against each other. It's at the end. It's at the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Uh, before I read this, some context: These uh, Israel is about to enter the promised land, and Deuteronomy 27 is like a liturgy that's giving them to read year after year, time after time. And after each one, the people were to say "Amen." But part of the liturgy they were to memorize, they were to learn, is this: "Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner." the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, amen. "Amen." So, it's at the end. It's at the beginning. How about the middle? Well, the middle of the Old First Testament, the middle of Israel's history, a lot of singing, a lot of praying. We know it as the Psalms, right? Again and again in the Psalms, you have this kind of praying and this kind of singing, He, the Lord, upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but He frustrates the ways of the wicked. And again, as I was flipping through the Psalms this week, it's like... This kind of language and introduction is is God's calling card. Imagine you and I were out at the welcome desk. You're new to Waterstone. We meet, I introduce myself. Hi, I'm Larry Renault. I'm one of the pastors here at Waterstone. I have a beautiful wife named Jan. I have two amazing sons named Ethan and Luke. Uh, I like to read presidential biographies. Now you know know everything about me. While we're talking and you're telling me your calling cards Jesus walks up, and Jesus says, Hi, I'm Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Psalm 68. I'm a father to the fatherless. I protect widows. I place the lonely in families. That's my calling card. He wants God. He wants us each to have a calling card. If you go to the Proverbs, Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. If we neglect the poor, we neglect God. If we respect the poor, we respect God. And all of this, by the way, in the ancient context of a patriarchal society, a man-powered society. In a man-powered society, where is God standing? With the widow. In a family-driven culture, where is God standing? With the orphan. In a citizenship-based community, where blood and tribe matter, where is God standing? With the immigrant. In a wealth-as-success-driven culture, where is God standing? You know it, with the poor. If we think we have a relationship with God, but we do not have a relationship with the poor or the oppressed. We do not have a right relationship with God. Deep breath, interlude. I want to just take a quick dive into that word justice because, as I said, it's a triggering word. It divides our culture. Everyone wants justice, and everyone has a different opinion of what that means. And even, and especially I've seen it in churches, everyone believes in justice, but not everyone believes what it, knows what it means. And so briefly, from a biblical perspective, here's what we mean by justice. And by the way, this is, uh, if you want to read more and go deep, uh, the elders about three or four years ago, we read a book together called Generous Justice by Tim Keller. And we highly recommend this book. It's out in our bookstore. You can pick up a way on the way home. Um, Generous justice by Tim Keller, and Tim Keller says that justice, from a biblical point of view, means at least three things. First, it means equal treatment. Equal treatment. If you look at Leviticus, the biblical law, which is a reflection of God's heart, again and again, you run into statements like this: You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. I am the Lord your God. In other words, punishment and acquittal depend on evidence, on justice. They do not depend on blood or tribe. All people are to be treated equally no matter where they're coming from. Equal treatment. You need to understand how like unique that was in the ancient world. If you go online, you could read the Code of Hammurabi, another ancient law, and just see that most of the justice played out in ancient world. You had to belong to a family. You had to have a bloodline. You had to be connected to powerful people. That's how you would get justice. If you weren't, yikes. Yikes for you. We come to this God of Israel, and Israel being a light to all the nations, and say, oh, wait, justice does not depend on your bloodline, or who you know, or who you're connected to. Justice depends on you being human. Why? Because every human being is made in the image of God, and therefore deserves equal treatment. Every person we know is a piece of work, God's work, and therefore deserve justice. So, it starts there, equal treatment under God's law for all. But we also know that in every nation, people group, tribe, language, every, every nation, every state, every club of 10 people, what happens? Habits develop, practices, attitudes, ways of viewing the world, Systems, laws develop over time that begin to exclude people, people who can't measure up, people who are not having the right family line, the right power friendships. People get pushed to the margins. In the ancient Israel times, there was four groups that generally got pushed to the margins and had no safety net. And God names them again and again and again. The orphan, the widow, the poor, and the immigrant. That was the holy quartet in the First Testament. And they were continually pushed to the margins, overlooked, neglected, sometimes mistreated, and persecuted. In our day, who would we add to the list? Migrant workers? The elderly? the single mom, the unborn, this is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. That is no more. And we are thankful for that. But do you think that that's going to stop people from having abortions? We must continue to be a voice for the unborn, for those human beings in the image of God in the womb, a womb that Jesus himself sanctified. We must continue to speak for those who cannot speak. Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So everyone deserves equal treatment. But in every group and culture and nation, there are people pushed to the margins and they warrant special concern. And then the third part of justice, so it's equal treatment, special concerns for those in the margins. And then the third part of justice is generosity. We saw it in our text there in Isaiah 58. Is, uh, I just want to highlight two words. Share your food, provide the poor. Share and provide. Justice and mercy always get to a point where we need to provide resources. If mercy means alleviating suffering, how does that happen? With provision of resources. If justice means getting to the causes that are uh, you know, causing the suffering, that takes time and resources. And so part of what justice is is generosity which leads us then to the practices. So we see that the heart of God is a heart of mercy and justice. We've seen what justice means. And then finally, the three practices in our discipleship profile of what it means to live the restore rhythm. First thing it means is generosity. Joyfully, sacrificially, giving of your time and resources to the local church, the vulnerable, and to worldwide discipleship-making efforts, resources. We give resources. Now, uh, what I want to talk about, I think we all kind of have a sense of that. Well, I do need to bring C.S. Lewis into into the sermon because that always makes a good sermon. Some of you are always wrestling. This is the new time of year, setting budgets, all this. The question always comes up, well, how much should I give? I, under- I think everyone who knows Jesus and who follows Jesus, and even people who maybe don't know yet Jesus but would want to follow him, understand that you know, generosity is a part of this thing. To be a Christian is to be a generous person. But the question that we wrestle with, and by the way, I don't think we ever get over this tension. In fact, I think the longer you live and the more you accumulate and have, the, the more the tension gets. You just don't get over it. You don't get off the hook that easy. I think that tension grows, and that's a good thing. But the question is, how much should we give? C.S. Lewis said, more. (laughs) Mere Christian, you should give more. You should give more than you can spare. C.S. Lewis said, you should give enough so that your amusements, your luxuries, and your comforts are impinged. He said... You should this year give enough so that you and your family can't do some things you want to do. I didn't say it. C.S. Lewis said it. (laughs) Think about it. What generosity means. Okay. So I want to talk about for just a minute and each of the three practices we'll walk through, what obstructs them? Last night I used the word constipation and I got reamed out by the Saturday Night audience. So you can thank them for uh, making it a more <laughs> acceptable sermon. Obstructing what obstructs generosity? Two things. One is sometimes we get a wildly out of whack kingdom, not kingdom view of money. We think money is ours. We think, yeah, I worked hard for that money. I mean, I worked really hard. It's mine. Well, uh, we think, yeah, you know, it's, it's my skill, my aptitude. I've worked my way up. You, you wouldn't believe the hours I've invested to get where I am today. So this money, I earned it. God's response to your short-sighted opinion of money? Let's walk through this just for a moment, shall we? You were born. How did that happen? The circumstances of your life, the the things, the aptitudes, the wiring, the people, the, the the things that have enabled you to get to this point in life to be where you are and have what you have. How did that happen? And you know, by the way, right? You know, especially even thinking of what we've already talked about this morning. There's no guarantee you get another beat of your heart, except it's given. So whose money is it? And it's not yours. It's not your money. It's God's money, and you are stewards of that money. Second obstruction of generosity is this. Sometimes we forget that we're... Creatures of time and where we're living. Sometimes the eternity does not impact our budget as we should. The rich young ruler, um, uh, Jesus, you know, has this encounter with a rich young ruler and he tells him to go and sell everything you have to the poor. And just this whole con- conversation happens. Again, a very uh, like squirming conversation. Jesus, too, you know, says that we should give to the poor. Uh, at the very end, Peter asked the question that all of us were thinking. Like, wait a minute, I've given up everything to follow you. What do I get out of the deal, Jesus? Remember that at the end, Mark chapter 10? What do I get out of the deal if I give so much away? And Jesus says two things. One, he says, well, you get the eternal kingdom. Okay, let's start there, the eternal kingdom. Folks, you're going to be here 70, 80 years, accumulate all these resources. What does it mean if you spend those resources mostly on yourself? What does that mean? I'll never forget reading Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle and coming across this one section he called the five-minute test. Here's what it means to have eternity invade your budget. Five minutes after you get to heaven, you will turn around and think, oh my goodness, Why did I keep so much? Why did I spend so much on myself? Why didn't I give more away? Perhaps you could take the five-minute test and ask yourself, five minutes after I'm in heaven, what will I wish I had given more? That's the eternal test. The other piece is the the temporal test, because Jesus also tells Peter, Look, you're heading towards an eternal kingdom, let that influence your money. But even now, he says, Now, you will get a hundred times more. You will get homes and brothers and sisters and moms and dads and fields. And you think, Jesus, what does that mean? You mean like, even now, I get all this stuff? Think about it. Yes. Yes, because according to God's heart and what we've saw today, that if there comes a time in my life where I need help, where I'm a wondering person, like the text says, guess what's going to happen because I'm part of God's family? I have homes. I have your home. I have your home. Your home. Your home. They're all my homes. Like if I'm on the streets, I've got lots of houses to choose from. When I'm experiencing the worst day of my life, I have brothers and sisters who will take care of me. Sue Hagstrom, Sue who lost Rick. Rick and Sue have been in a small group for the last, I don't know, two or three years that Keith and Marie Hughes lead. And two days after Sue lost her husband, she joined her small group via Zoom and they wept with her and loved her from 13 time zones away. The other side of the world, Sue had family. That's what it means to give up everything and gain houses and brothers and sisters and moms and dads. So, we can be generous. Second practice is to love mercy by serving others using passions, time, and talents to demonstrate God's mercy to the world. Mercy is the alleviation of suffering through generous resources, whatever's in front of you. If someone's hungry, we feed them. If someone's thirsty, we give them water. If someone needs clothes, we clothe them. If someone needs shelter, we shelter them. Whatever the acute need is in front of us, we find a way to help, to show mercy. What obstructs mercy? In brief, the opposite of mercy is not hatred. The opposite of mercy is apathy, numbness. And I think one of the things the church is wrestling with right now is we've been through so much, so much the last three years that we're kind of numb to pain, to others' pain. I think perhaps, you know, we see things now and it's like we're not moved. It doesn't get into our gut like perhaps it used to. What do we do? How do we crank mercy and pump it up? I'm convinced that the, it's, the way not to do it is to sit around and wait for the feeling to come back. Oh, Netflix, would you give me more mercy? That's not it. Feelings follow Behavior. Pick something again where you're around people who need help, and show up, and your heart will follow. Feelings follow behavior. We're going to put our church website up there. We have, a Kylie leads like 12 or 13 different places you can show up where there are hurting people who need mercy. Choose one. Many of you are already doing this, if you need to get more mercy in your life because it's God's heart and you want it to be your practice, choose one. Show up for someone who needs you. Same is true with justice, our third and final practice of what it means to show mercy and justice by growing in awareness, action, advocacy on behalf of the vulnerable. And uh, what, what justice is, is getting to the causes of what causes people to be you know, in really low valleys. And so you read and you research and you just, again, show up at places. We have people in this congregation, our Chan Network, Colorado uh, Hosting Asylum Network, where we've rented apartments. We have Venezuelan families that we, we are supporting. We have care teams wrapped around them. You can become a part of that and learn more about what the, the immigration system is and is not and how it is working and it's not working. And get involved, like feet on the ground, instead of just getting irritated when you watch the news. Like, dig in. Get involved. It's on our website. We have, we have people in our church. We have North Littleton Promise and people in our church who actually have worked with police departments to work against sex trafficking that happens in these little strip malls where you see massage parlors everywhere. Many, many of those have women enslaved right in our backyard. You, I'm getting like a little worked up here. I'm convinced that what obstructs our justice is that we get mad, like the last 3 years have made us very mad at like everything. But one of the dangers of that is we're mad at everything and not righteous in our anger. We're not getting angry about the right things. We're not getting angry about oppression. We're not getting angry about people being mistreated. We're angry because the price of eggs is $5. Now, don't get me wrong, that's something. But let's get angry about things and people that really need our anger and our advocacy. Which leads us, as we come now to the table, give generously. Love mercy. Do justice. What motivates a heart just to jump in and get involved there? Well, Jesus was talking to this rich young ruler, and he told him to give everything away. It says at one point in the text, in the story, that Jesus looked at him, and that word look is like to stare, like Jesus knows everything about his life, and he knows exactly what he's asking this man to do. He looked him in the eye. And then the text says, he loved him. He loved him. Jesus, about the same age, Jesus, the rich young ruler, Jesus who left wealth and glory and joy beyond compare. He did give it all away to come, look us in the eye, and say, I love you. Follow me that love and his coming to you is what stirs our heart for mercy and for justice and jesus today calls you he loves you and he wants to meet you even at the table if you're here today and you've been wondering what it means to be a christian and wondering how to get involved in following jesus the first move is just to say jesus i'm yours I know you love me, I believe you do, and I want to give my life to you. I want to give you my allegiance. Become part of your story and what you're doing in this world. I want to be part of your kingdom. Just tell them. Just tell them that right now. Jesus, I want to follow you.